If you have a copy of the scriptures, I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. This will be our last sermon in James for a while at least. We'll come back to it at some point, I hope. Uh, want to do something a little bit different in the introduction this morning. So I want to summarize the book and go through that with you all again. Then I want to read the passage. And then I've got some more comments to make about these verses before we jump in. Sound good? Get, get where we're going so far? All right. So let's remember, what is James describing? A cruciform life, a life shaped by the gospel. That's right. James is not giving us a new list. He is showing us, he is describing for us what a life looks like that is shaped and formed by the cross. All right? How is God motivating us through James? By grace. And we're normally motivated by deficit, right? Think about your jobs, think about the gym, think about everything. What you don't have and what you want. There's a deficit in your life, therefore you need to work hard to get it. God desires that we are motivated by grace, not by our deficit. He wants us to be motivated from the fullness of Jesus so that we don't have to look at our lives and say, well, I'm deficient here, here, and here, because it's all true. But we give up our deficiencies for the fullness of Jesus and he changes us. It's really hard to live by grace, beloved. It's really hard. And I just want to create space in your life in which I'm hoping you might be open to not being motivated so much by your deficits, but that you might be open to the idea of being motivated by grace, being motivated by and from the fullness of Jesus. Last, we've talked about how this fits with our vision, love God, love people, love the city, love place, and God wants us to be what? Ordinary people doing ordinary things with gospel intentionality. God wants us to remember that he doesn't so much have a mission for his people as a people for his mission. Remember that? All right. Hear this from James 5, verses 13 through, 13 through 20. Beloved, this is a portion of a letter from home. So receive it from your father. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Before I pray, I want to cover four things because we can't 
talk about every little nuance of these verses, but I know that these verses can bring up in us four immediate questions. And so I want to deal with those questions on the front end. That way you can at least look back, to, look back and reflect on those four things, and you'll have those in your mind as we work our way through the text together. Now, these are brief answers. These are not exhaustive answers, but this is as uh, uh, succinctly as I can communicate this to you, okay? So when you read these verses, these four things may come to your mind immediately. Number one, in verse 15, what is a prayer of faith? What is that? Well, let me tell you what it's not. It's not a prayer that is without doubt. That's not what it's talking about. Neither is it a prayer that is about declaring something, meaning I declare that this is healed or this happens. It's not a declaration either. Neither of those things. It's not saying that a prayer of faith is made without doubt or that we are declaring something to happen because that would shift everything about prayer into the realm of how powerful we think we are and when something doesn't work, we can think, well, it's my fault. I didn't have enough faith, or maybe I didn't declare something clearly enough. It's neither of those things. We'll get into what it is when we go through the verses. But I want you to know that the cry of our hearts will always be, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Question number two, you can read these verses and think to yourself, so are these verses saying that every sickness is tied to a specific sin that I've committed? So if I get sick, Dave had cancer last year and is still battling, is that because I directly committed a specific sin? Is that what it is? No. Remember this happened with Jesus in which Religious people came to Jesus and said, hey, Jesus, you're, you're talking to this blind man. Well, who sinned? Did he sin or was it his parents? And Jesus said, neither. I'm going to give this man sight so that my power may be made known. So is every sin tied to a specific thing that we've done? Is every sickness tied to a specific sin that we have done? No. We can have effects of sin, of sickness from our sin. And ultimately, all sin and death and disease started in the garden when we rebelled. But just because we have some sickness doesn't mean that it's tied to a specific sin that we have done. But you could have that question. It may come to your mind. Here's the third one. Um, is this text saying that Every time I pray when someone is sick that they will be healed? Is this making an absolute statement in verse 15 and 16 that this prayer will heal this person? Is that an absolute statement? Well, the quick answer to that is no. You remember this guy named the Apostle Paul? He had this thing, this thorn in his side, and he prayed to God and said, Lord, please take this away from me three times. And God didn't do it. You know Why? Because he was teaching Paul that his grace is sufficient. Here's a quote that's helped guide my thinking in this. The quote says this. In prayer, God either gives you what you ask for or what you would have asked for if you knew everything that he knows. Fourth, 
When you read these verses, you come down to verse 20, and you might think to yourself, hmm, so is this intimating or hinting that someone who follows Jesus could lose their salvation? Is verse 20 saying that someone can lose their salvation? Quick answer, no. Look, if we could lose our salvation, we would. It's not saying that. What is being driven home is this. If we say that we follow Jesus and we're keeping and feeding our little pet sins and we don't feel deeply disturbed, then it might indicate that the voice of our accuser, the voice of Satan himself and his accusations might be a lot louder in our lives than the voice of Jesus and what he says about us. In other words, when we talk about wandering in verse 19 and 20, and we get into what these words are actually saying, remember this, please remember this. All of these little warning sections are meant to jar us out of ourselves and into Jesus afresh. They're they're not meant to make us think, oh, well, if I don't do this, then I may lose my salvation. That's not it at all. God is continuing to pursue us, and he will do things in our lives, and we'll realize things in our lives that are meant to jar us out of self and self-sufficiency and into Jesus. That's what's happening. That's it. All right, those are the four things. So I had to say those on the front end. I could say a lot more about them, but that I don't want those questions lingering in your mind and heart after the service this morning. And if those are not clear answers or you need more, please come talk to me. I'm happy to do that. Let's pray and then let's jump in. Lord, thank you for giving us worship. Remind us that we're not here because we need to learn how to be nice and be nicer. That we're here because we need to know more of you. We need to understand more about ourselves. And we need to change by your power so that we might Fulfill our callings this week and love one another and love our neighbors and and serve this place where you've put us. So Holy Spirit, make Jesus trustworthy afresh to us. Make Jesus eternally trustworthy to us. Make him, make Jesus irresistible to us again and again and again for your glory. Amen. You know, verse 13 pulls us, grabs us, pulls us, grabs us right into the text. Look at verse 13. If anyone is uh, suffering, let him pray. If anyone is cheerful, let him sing. Did you catch that? He's pulling us right in. The words that he uses for suffering and cheerfulness are actually very generic words. It's as if James wants to say right from the beginning, hey, y'all, how you doing today? In other words, whatever might bring about having a bad day, that's what he means when he uses the word suffering. Are you just in a bad spot? Or do you come here this morning, are you cheerful? Whatever circumstances are going on in your lives, is your primary disposition this morning cheerful? James is saying, come on into this text. He's saying, think about your life. He's saying, is there anything that's got you a little off? Well, guess what? You can pray. 
He's saying, if you're really happy this morning, well, no matter what that is, guess what? You should have a song in your heart. What James is saying in this first verse, pulling us into the text, is this. We have a God for every circumstance of life. Isn't that awesome? So whether you're here this morning and you're kind of off or down in the dumps a little bit, or whether you come and you're full of joy, guess what? God is the center of your life. And he's there no matter what you're going through. Now the text from here gets even better. Not only does he pull us in in verse 13, but if you look at the remaining verses, he actually gives us two live situations, real life situations. He talks about someone who's sick, and he talks about someone who's wondering. And that is meant to pull us in even more to what he's saying. So let's work our way through these two situations, these two real life situations. Let's talk about sickness. What are you going to do when you get sick? I mean, none of us plan on getting sick. I'll be the first one to admit that. I didn't plan on getting sick last year, just so you know. What are you going to do when you get really, really sick? What are you going to do? Well, James says, put yourself in this room and let me show you what happens when someone gets sick and they call for the elders of the church. Let me put you in this room, in this situation where you see yourself as the sick person. And here's what happens. There's oil. Remember in the ancient world, oils were used as medicine. There's a story of this guy called the Good Samaritan. He finds this guy on the side of the road. He's all beat up and left for dead. And what does he do? He applies oil and wine to him. Wine is an antiseptic and oil for medicinal purposes. In other words, when you get really sick, you might need some medicine. But then there's something else that he says in the text. In verse 16 in particular, and even some in 15, he talks about confession. Did you see that? Confession. So when you get really, really sick, it sounds like you need some oil and you need confession. And the idea here of confession is this. Someone said something to you before that you didn't agree with. And after a period of time, you go back to the person who said that thing that you were doing that you didn't agree with, and now you agree with them. That's what's meant by confession. In other words, during time of sickness, it is important for us to think through our lives, and if someone has something against us and we disagreed with them, we need to rethink about that and wonder whether or not we still disagree, or if we agree. And if we do agree, then we should go to them and say, you know what, you were right and I was wrong. Now, as a parent, I've had to do this a lot. There are times in which Jenny will come to me and she'll say, Dave, I think that you were too harsh with the kids, and I don't think you were listening to them. And guess what? Normally, my immediate reaction is no, it wasn't. And she's getting kind of good at saying this to me, because she'll kind of say it and then just kind of walk away. Because I need some time. You know why? Because I am a prideful person. I don't like to admit that I'm wrong. I certainly don't like to admit that I've been harsh with someone or that I'm not listening. And then over time, 
She's right. Gonna have to go back to her or to the kids and say, hey, I was harsh and I wasn't listening. That's what James is talking about with confession here. There are situations in your life in which people come to you and say you're doing something wrong and you don't agree. And then ultimately you come back and say, you were right. You were right. But here's something else. You see, God is also reminding us by attaching confession with oil in this room with someone who's really sick and elders are around. What, what he also wants us to remember is this, that body and soul go together. I heard a man say one time, and I love this, I love it when science catches up with the Bible. <laughs> There's a particular place where this guy that lived a long time ago named David, he was a king of God's people. And there's a particular place where he writes and he talks about how his bones were eating him away while he was harboring something inside of him. There are things in our lives that can happen and make us sick or cause there to be negative physical reactions because we're harboring or keeping something within. Because I get stressed out, I can get ulcers. Because I get stressed out, I can get really bad headaches. Because I worry, those things can happen. Do you see? Physical things can happen because something is going on inside of us. And God is saying, you were made body and soul. And there can be times in our lives in which we actually have negative physical ramifications because we got something going on inside of us. Whether it, we're harboring something, whether we are keeping some pet sin, whether we're just getting eaten alive with guilt or shame. Or maybe all that nervousness that we have sometimes is because we put so much stock in what someone else may think about us that actually cripples us physically. Sound familiar? God is saying... Remember, as you're confessing, remember your own body and remember what's going on inside of you and get honest with yourself about what's going on and maybe that your sickness is not related to anything you're harboring at all. Great. But if it is, if you get really sick, it's a really good time to think about whether you need to confess it's a really good time to think about if you're harboring something deep down within. It's a really good time to do that. And you may need medicine. And you may need more than that. And then we come to this phrase in verse 15. There's oil, there's confession, and then verse 15, there's this prayer of faith. Remember, the prayer of faith is not a prayer without doubt. The prayer of faith is not declaring something about the situation. What is it? It's a very specific request. That's what God's getting at there. When someone is really, really sick and you need to bring oil, you need to bring medicine, and there's confession that has the opportunity to take place. When you make a prayer in those moments when the elders pray over someone, it looks like this because we've done it before. We anoint someone with oil and then we say, Lord, 
You can use medicine to accomplish whatever you want, and you can work above and beyond any medicine that we could ever come up with. Will you heal this in this person? Will you do that for your glory? And we submit all that to you, Lord. We've done, your elders have done that before. It's a beautiful, powerful thing to pray for someone and to pray specifically that God would do something. And then James reminds us of Elijah. And this may be a little bit peculiar for you, but I guess he's trying to get into us that we got lots of doubts and we got ups and downs in our lives. And maybe we need somebody to remind us that there have been people like that as long as people have been around. And the thing about Elijah is you can read about him if you want in this Old Testament book in 1 Kings. If you really want to get specific, seven, chapter 17 through 19 is pretty remarkable. See, here's what happened in Elijah's life. He saw some absolutely amazing things. I mean stuff that I've never seen before. I mean like fire coming out of heaven and like drying up water and consuming all kinds of things to declare that God's real. I mean like miraculous provision of food. I mean all kinds of amazing things. And sometimes when I read and think about Elijah, I think to myself, you know, if I just saw what Elijah did, I would never doubt again. But do you know what we read about Elijah? He saw these amazing things and guess what? Man, he was really depressed. There was a time when he wanted to die. Uh, he saw God act miraculously. And he was still like, oh, I'm, just, I'm not sure about this. That's why James says, think about Elijah who has a nature just like ours. Elijah saw amazing things and yet he still struggled with many, many things. But guess what? He kept praying to God. He kept talking to God. He kept asking God for big things. He kept begging God to fulfill his promises and fulfill his word. He kept praying God's words back to him. He kept keeping, he kept in his mind and in his heart what God had planned to do in the world. And he kept praying that over and over to God. Beloved, you've seen some amazing things in your life. I'm sure of it. I am sure of it. I'm sure that you've seen God move. I'm sure that you have your own personal experiences of things that God has done that you didn't even ask for that God did. And I'm sure there have been things that you've asked for and he's done. I'm sure that that has happened. And I'm sure that you have times of ups and downs. Don't stop begging God to fulfill his plan. Don't stop begging the word of God to God. Don't stop, don't stop pleading with God through his word. Read scripture and pray that back to God. Remember his plan for the world and pray that to God. That's what James is saying with this first real life situation. What are you going to do when you get sick? What are you going to do when you get real sick and you can't get out of bed? You might need to call for some elders. You might need some medicine. Maybe you need to do some confessing. 
Maybe you need people to pray for you because you can't. Beloved, we ought to always continue to pray God's word to him and continue to beg him to accomplish his will. Well, that's the first scenario. Here's the second real life scenario. Look at 19 and 20. This is a scenario in which we're wandering. You ever wandered? You know, wandering is, has your heart ever been kind of cold toward the gospel? Has Jesus gotten boring to you? You ready to, you ready to move on from Jesus and get on with these five steps of how to make things happen in your life? Do these three things and have better marriage. Do these 10 things, have a great parent, be a great parent. Do these 12 things and become financially independent. Do these three things and get, get, get more committed in your spiritual life. You ever been there? Has Jesus gotten boring for you? Has the gospel become just, you know, something you assume all the time? That might mean that you're wondering, that I'm wondering when Jesus is not the most important thing. When the gospel isn't something that I really, really, really need. There's a movie that came out a number of years ago. Um, actually, yeah. A movie came out a number of years ago that was about this uh, uh, civil war going on in Sierra Leone, West Africa. And there's battles between a government and then all these little militaristic faction things. And this whole movie was about how some of these uh, little militia factions, these little armies um, would kidnap children and would brainwash children and would equip them with uh, guns so that they could fight and uh, task them with mining for diamonds so that they could find diamonds and then fund the malicious activity. And there was this movie that depicted all of this civil war going on and the main character had a son who was kidnapped. And after a period of time, there was a scuffle that the main character got in and he got kind of turned around a little bit and he looked up and there was his son the one that had been kidnapped and brainwashed, and his son had a gun. And his son was pointing the gun right at his father. And the father begins to say to his son, Dia, Dia, this is your father. I'm your father. Your mother loves you. She's at home waiting for you. You love soccer. You love school. The cows wait for you, Dia. That that wayward dog that only minds you, waits for you, Dia. Dia, I am your father. I know you've done many bad things, but you are my son, and you will come home with me, and we will be together. Beloved, that is what's happening in 19 and 20. When we wander, someone pursues us and reclaims us. And they do that by telling us the gospel, which is God saying, you are my son, my daughter. I know what you like. I know that you've done many bad things. I know that you are wandering away, but I have come for you. And you will come home with me. And you will be my child. And we will live together. Do you hear the gospel in that? All because of what Jesus has done. 
You see, the reason why this passage is so powerful and important and necessary is because we live in a very extremely dehumanizing culture. You know, the culture that we're a part of, the culture that we participate in, we live in a very dehumanizing way. We live in the type of culture that says, you know, create who you want to be. Invent yourself. Recreate yourself. Create your own meaning. Create your own truth. And don't judge anyone. And at the same time, our culture is full of rage, isn't it? Our culture is ready to pounce on anything that it wants to. Do you ever feel that? So on one side, we got this mantra that's create yourself, invent yourself. On the other, and, and, and don't judge anyone. And then on the other, no matter what we say, someone could pounce on us at any time for any conceivable reason and just spew vitriolic hate and disgust and, and just anger. And when you think about what happens when those things clash, this is why we see that our culture is basically in a gridlock all the time in which we're just pointing fingers at each other, in which there are no consequences for any decision that we make, in which people are more lonely than they've ever been, in which people are more depressed than they've ever been, in which people don't know what to do. There's no internal resilience. Do you feel this? Do you see it? We live, we live in a time in which it's so dehumanizing to say that you can do whatever you want, don't judge anyone, and then bam, constantly beating people down. Doesn't it make sense that people aren't very resilient anymore? Doesn't it make sense that people feel lonely? Uh, here I am trying to create my own truth, but if I say one thing, this entire group of people may start hating on me. Sound familiar? It's everywhere. It's so dehumanizing. That's why this passage is so important because we live in a culture that dehumanizes us every single day. And the point of this passage, here's the billboard. I know I usually do this in the beginning, but I decided to work my way up to it this week. The whole point of this passage is connection. You need to be connected to people. You need connection. You need commitment. None of us plan on getting sick, but it's probably going to happen to most of you. What are you going to do? Where are you connected? Where are you committed? Where? Where are you pursuing people that need to be pursued that are wandering do, do you, have you chosen elders to say, I need you to care for my soul? Have you done that? Because according to this, you need to. If you could fast forward your life to those times where you might get a sickness that you weren't anticipating, what are you going to do? Do you have any connections anywhere? Are you committed anywhere to anything? 
Are you willing to be pursued if someone who cares for your soul sees that you're wandering? Have you authorized anyone to do that? Or are you just living a dehumanized life in which you're trying to make everything yourself and, and find everything out yourself and live your own way, but deep down you got this longing because you're lonely? Are you willing to get close enough to someone and, and share your heart and your soul with them so that if you start to wonder, they can pursue you? Or, or will you get close enough to people so that you could pursue someone else if you see that they're wandering? This section is all about connection and being connected. It's all about real relationships that are centered on Jesus and the gospel and the power of God. And here's the most important thing. In other words, if you walk out of here today and you think, well, what in the world was that guy saying? Hopefully, the one, whoever you say that to will say, well, he was talking about connection. Hope you'll get that. And hope you see how that connection was worked out in scenario, real life scenario one and two. And you'll think about your own life in those scenarios and what you would do. But you can't miss the most important connection of this whole text. In other words, if we don't make this connection that we're about to, we'll miss everything. There's a phrase we left off in verse 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful in its working. See that? We hadn't talked about that yet. Because that's the center of this whole thing. It's actually amazing. Let me put this on a scale for you so that you can see where James is leading us, so you can see where God is leading us in this passage. Let's put that phrase in verse 16 on a scale. The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Remember the old King James to this? See if I can get this right off the cuff. Um, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Does that sound right? Does you, does you remember that? Let's put this on a scale. The prayer of an unrighteous person accomplishes nothing. The prayer of a righteous person accomplishes much. That's a paraphrase. Prayer of a more righteous person accomplishes more. The prayer of a perfectly righteous person accomplishes everything. Do you realize that we have a perfectly righteous person? His name is Jesus. You see, when you read that verse, you can begin to think, oh man, well, where am I on that scale? Have fun answering that one. Because all the time, no matter how mature you think you are, no matter how mature I think I am, no matter how immature you think you are, how immature I think I am, everything that we do is always tainted with sin. So no matter where you put yourself on the scale, you're in trouble. But you have Jesus. You have Jesus. And the Bible tells us that he passed through the heavens and is seated and makes continual intercession for us. 
People like you and me. You get it? Jesus' prayers accomplish everything. Everything. And that means the only way to undo the dehumanizing world that we live in, the only way to undo all of the mess that we live in and contribute to all the time is to depend upon this guy named Jesus. There was even a time in which he said to one of his closest friends, hey, Satan has asked for you, and he's asked for you so that he might jack you up. He wants to sift you. Think of a colander. He wants to shake you around in this colander of life so that you will fall through the holes and the cracks so that you will go straight to the bottom and then never be seen again. He wants to destroy you. But I have prayed for you. Beloved, Jesus is the one who prays for us all of the time, who satisfies everything that we need before God forever so that our prayers might reflect his prayers however imperfectly so that Jesus might undo the loneliness that may come from us living in this dehumanizing world Because the only thing that is going to bring this dehumanizing world together, the only thing that's going to be the real remedy for dehumanizing of one another is when Jesus reminds us that we were made in the image of God and have intrinsic value and worth. And we've all rebelled against God and we all need Jesus and his perfection for us and that by his spirit, He will enable us to live in a way that honors our maker. And oh, by the way, he's coming back. He's going to make all things right. It's only by looking at reality through that four-part story that the dehumanizing of our world will be undone. 